This MR340 is sure to become one that is talked about for years. The tales of grit, endurance, and courage in the face of everything the elements could throw at us will become legendary stories that are passed down from one year's participants to the next, growing in their telling and taking on a life of their own. Welcome to the Paddle Sports Lifestyle, where we invite you to dare to dream and embrace adventure. I'm your host, Kim Peek, and together with my friends, we'll help you discover new horizons and push the limits of what's possible. In season one, I'm gearing up for my biggest challenge yet, the MR340, a grueling 340-mile paddle race along the Missouri River. But before I embark on this epic journey, I'm going to need to learn everything about the world of paddling. Learn along with me so you can find your own epic adventure on the water. Hello, welcome back to the Paddle Sports Lifestyle. My name is Kim Peek, and I am so glad you're here. I'm here to give you the MR340 wrap-up to give you the highs, the lows, and all the craziness that took place this first week of August at the MR340. This event was wild. In short, we were reminded that Mother Nature is in control. This was not just a race. It was a battle against the elements, a true testament to human resilience, grit, heart, and the power of this amazing community that makes up the MR340. The MR340 is organized by Missouri River Relief, whose mission revolves around fostering an appreciation and understanding of the Missouri River through hands-on cleanups, education programs, and recreational activities. And I couldn't help but think that Mother Nature was making sure she got her attention to amplify this message, reminding us that we are not the people to be conquering nature, but we're active participants within it, and hopefully reminding everyone that we need to treat our environment with respect and responsibility. If you haven't heard by now, the race was cut short due to dangerous conditions. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in this story, so let me start at the beginning and tell you how my race went. We dropped our boats off at Caw Point on Monday, and we got what I thought was a fantastic spot not far from the ramp, and we also managed to keep all seven of our training partners' boats together, which made it fun as we prepared to launch on Tuesday morning. We visited the expo and drooled over some boats that some beach outfitters had on display. I was really loving the Stellar S16G2, and we took turns sitting in it. And I have that one on the top of my list so far of boats to look at for the 2024 MR340 attempt. Yes, I had already planned ahead of time to do this race again in 2024 because I knew that with everything I've learned and with extra time to train in different ways throughout the winter, which we'll talk about later, that I will come back even stronger for 2024. So I already know I'm going to do it. I'm planning on it. It was a done deal before this race ever started. The day before the race, we also took pictures with the Reaper, which was sitting in the parking lot, and we joked that we hoped that this would be the only time this week we saw the Reaper. After meeting at the expo, our group went our separate ways until morning. My friend Tracy picked me up at 5.15, and we left for Caw Point, arriving at 5.45. We got dropped off just outside the gate, so I didn't have too far to walk with my gear bag, which is always heavier than it should be. 
Fortunately, my training partner, Tim, was with me, and he helped to lighten the load as we walked together toward the area where our boats stayed overnight. The parking lot sits above the river, so as we walked toward our boats, we had a beautiful view of the Kansas City skyline just as the sun was coming up. The air was alive with music, creating a festive backdrop for this monumental day. And oh boy, did we not even have a clue at that point what we were about to face. The race started at 7, and according to what was released after the race, 469 boats started the race. So that was a lot of boats that we had to get into the water, and we knew everyone needed to have boats set up and ready to walk down the ramp before 6.30. Apparently, everybody else also thought that. They had that same time in mind because the ramp became a crowded buzz of activity as we began carrying the boats to the ramp. Tim and I made it into the water with about five minutes to spare, so we quickly adjusted items in our boats, connecting the tubes from our hydration bladders to our PFDs, mixing our perpetuum, and making sure our seats felt comfortable. I realized the buckle that holds my seat cushion was digging into my tailbone, and so I asked him to see if he could find that buckle and push it out of the way. And about the time we got that done, we positioned ourselves about three quarters of the way back and waited for the starting signal to go off. It was exhilarating to start the race alongside 300 other boats. I love watching the videos because you can see the sea of boats all rushing off the Kansas River and into the Missouri. It was easy to get caught up in wanting to start out fast from the start to keep up with all the paddlers. Shortly past the starting ramp, there's a section where the Kansas River flows into the Missouri, and we saw our first flipped boat right there at the confluence. What a way to start a very long day by having to get yourself back into a boat while all of the other racers are rushing toward you. Anyway, so for the first mile or two, my attention was focused on doing my own thing while also trying to avoid hitting other boats. We were pretty close together at that point, but I was surprised that the crowd of boats didn't last long. By the third mile, I would say, boats were no longer on top of each other, and it was really easier, pretty easy just to settle into your own race. The skies were overcast, and if there was a forecast for rain, I wasn't aware of it. I also wasn't listening to anybody who tried to tell me there was going to be rain because I was over trying to second guess all the weather forecasts and I figured at this point, whatever we faced was what we were going to have to deal with. I'm not really sure when the weather turned bad. I was kind of in my own zone. Our first planned stop was Fort Osage, which at a 6.5 mile an hour pace would take us about five hours getting in around noon. John is the head of our crew. He was phenomenal, such a great person. And come to find out in his past life in the military, he was in charge of planning the details, the itineraries for training operations. And so this was kind of his jam and he was phenomenal. He met us at the ramp in Fort Osage. He was holding a backpack full of supplies and he climbed clear into the water to meet us so we wouldn't have to get out of our boats. He handed us fresh water bladders that were filled with our scratch, which was our electrolyte carb mixture that we chose to use for this race. He also had fresh snacks, squeezed applesauce, and a freshly mixed bottle of Perpetuum. The Perpetuum that we drank is a product made by Hammer, 
And it is a mixture of carbs, protein, and a small amount of fat. So those were our primary sources of nutrition throughout the day. And then we would also mix in some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and whatever other snacks we brought on board. I had a variety of protein bars. We began paddling toward our next planned stop, which was in Lexington, about 21 miles away. And we needed to make that checkpoint in Waverly by 8 p.m. to beat the Reaper. Now, if you're new to this, the Reaper is the pacer boat. And at the seven official checkpoints, you must be ahead of the Reaper. Otherwise, your race is over. So we had to get to Waverly by 8 p.m. to beat the Reaper. The weather, however, had other plans. It was as if it was mocking our determination. The wind began to intensify. It was a repeat of the shootout race, which I talked about in episode 10. And if you don't remember this, this is the race where all we had was strong winds and I was positive I was going to die alone on the river. And that was only a 50-mile race. I don't know how strong the winds were in reality. I heard that throughout the two days, they ranged from 20 to 25 mile an hour winds. So that's pretty, pretty intense. Now, if you remember earlier episodes, I have struggled with the wind since my very first paddles in April out at Shawnee Mission Park. Back in April, the tiniest gust would keep me stuck out near the dam. And then we had the shootout race, which had me gripping my paddle, imagining I was dying alone texting people to make sure that they weren't going to leave without me because I was positive I was the very, very last racer and all I was doing was spinning my boat around in a circle, making forward progress seem like the most impossible feat. And now, here we were facing the same winds at the very beginning of the MR340 on day one. I knew I had to be strong and keep paddling if I wanted to finish the race. Really, the whole day is an adrenaline-filled blur. I don't remember exactly when the wind picked up. In my mind, our primary objective was clear, maintaining a steady pace to outpace the Reaper. I knew we wouldn't have a lot of time to waste at ramps between Caw Point and Waverly, and I just really, really hate that feeling of having to keep a certain pace and The way this day started, we knew that was what we were going to face until the very last minute of that day. Shortly after we left Fort Osage, Tim turned to me and said, I know you're not going to like this, but we need to split up. And I am sure that my response sounded like the whine of a toddler. But in my heart, I knew he was right. I had been contemplating something similar. He just caught me off guard because... His suggestion seemed just a bit premature. We had made the ramp at Fort Osage exactly according to our race plan. The idea of parting ways so soon wasn't one I was prepared for at that exact moment. I had been thinking about it, but I really thought it was too soon. So we said our goodbyes and we planned to meet before the 8 o'clock checkpoint in Waverly. I'm sure that I mumbled a few choice words under my breath about what a jerk he was because in the moment I was a little bit mad. But we always knew it might come down to needing to split up to make sure at least one of us beat the Reaper. I just wasn't expecting it so early in the race. From there, I dug in and focused on the water ahead of me, thinking about my paddle stroke and my form and reminding myself that I had trained for this. I was prepared, and to get to that checkpoint, I needed to accept that I would need to battle brutal winds 
for the rest of the day. I couldn't change the fact that the next several hours would be a ceaseless struggle against the elements to reach the checkpoint. So I gave myself a little pep talk, a reminder that I am strong and independent and I can succeed on my own. I accepted what was happening in that moment and I paddled on. Before I knew it, I was approaching Lexington. Our plan called for us to hit Lexington at 3 o'clock and I was right on track even with the unforgiving wind. I spotted John easily with the bright yellow hat and bright yellow shirt he chose to wear for easy visibility. I had already sent him a text asking for just a refill on water when I got to the ramp. Instead, he told me to get out of the boat. And I was so confused. I didn't want to stay in Lexington. And here my crew was pulling the boat up the ramp and out of the way, telling me to get out of the boat. Then... We walked up the ramp, and I discovered that Tim was still in Lexington. He was in the process of putting on his life jacket and restocking his boat. To say I was happy to see him is an understatement. But rather than show my true emotions, I put on a little angry face, and I looked at John and Tim, and I said, Neither of you better underestimate me ever again. And I don't know what their reaction was. I I think everybody laughed and then we continued getting ready to leave Lexington. So we left Lexington together and we stayed together for the remainder of the race. And I am super, super grateful for that because I really appreciated all the things he did to keep me focused and all of the mental load he carried to get us both safely from ramp to ramp. Waverly was the critical point in this race. It was the checkpoint that we had to clear to stay away from the Reaper on the first day. Our race plan called for a 6.30 arrival. And again, even with the wind, we were not too far off track. We got there close to 7 p.m. Our original plan was to stop and relax, stretch a bit, and get in some good nutrition. We were greeted at the ramp by John, who helped us carry our boats up the ramp. And then we saw Jamie and Veronica, who headed up the cruise for Anne and Paul. Their paddlers had just left Waverly. The tension in the air at that time was as thick as the humidity. News of a storm heading our way had everyone on edge. Crew members had worried expressions as everyone debated whether it was smart to continue on. Despite John's apprehension about us leaving the safety of the ramp, we knew we had no choice. If we stayed in Waverly, our race would be over. We resupplied and took off for Miami, hoping to beat the storm. And again, Most of the details are a blur. We left Waverly close to 7.30 and our plan showed that we would be in Miami at 10.30 before going to sleep in Dalton Bottoms at 2 a.m. However, that plan went completely out the window as the storms rolled in. Clearly, this is where the day went off the rails for us. We tried to focus on the day turning into night, watching the sun go down, trying to snap mental pictures of the sun behind the trees, and the reflection on the water, then watching the sky gradually turn dark, noticing the stars, then seeing the moon begin to rise. I was kind of scared as the darkness hit, because you might remember a few episodes ago, we had a run-in with a buoy, and one of the paddling partners flipped his boat in the pitch black. So I'm not a huge fan of paddling in the dark still. But it was fun as it got darker and darker, to see all the white lights ahead of us, and to turn and see the red and green lights behind us. And 
The reason there are white lights ahead of us is because you have to have a white light as your tail light, and then you have a green and a red light on the front of your boat. And so it was just kind of fun. It felt like you were looking at one of those festivals where everybody goes out into the water and there's those Chinese lanterns or some kind of a luminary that's floating on the water. So that felt really cool. And we tried to focus on things like that to take our mind off of the stress of paddling to beat the storm. As the moon rose, it was just this giant ball of orange with a few wisps of clouds in front of it. And it reminded me of a gorgeous high school theater set or something that an artist would paint, kind of like a watercolor painting. It was bright and orange, but it was also kind of muted because of the clouds. And I just made sure to take time to appreciate it. There's been people that have posted pictures of it, and I still have yet to see a picture that truly captures how beautiful the moon was. Shortly after sunset, we encountered our first paddler who would take a spill that night. One of the things that I've loved about this community is that everybody truly, truly cares. So we were kind of paddling with a cluster of boats at that moment, and everybody stopped, or slowed down at least, to ask if the paddler was okay, and then Tim paddled over to help steady that boat to make it easier for that paddler to get back in. Now, we also heard that there were some really, really scary big spills that also took place that night. As we continued on, we could see lightning in the distance. We knew we needed to make it to Miami and knew that if we stopped, we would be stuck in the rainstorm. So we continued on. We were tired, but tried to get that second wind, paddling harder and harder to get to Miami. We saw a bunch of boat navigation lights off to the right and wondered why so many had stopped there. It was just this cluster of boats. And it wasn't until morning that I realized that I had Hills Island out of place on my list of landmarks. Hills Island is the place where the Reaper stays that night. And because I had it out of place, I thought Hills Island was on the other side of Miami. And I was just in this panic because I knew we were going to be stuck in Miami for the night and we were going to be behind the Reaper. The boats we saw were choosing to sleep at Hills Island for the night. Hills Island is just another sandbar with no services, no warm place to sleep, no running water or supplies. You're probably throwing a tarp down if you even had a tarp on your boat, and sleeping on top of the sand. In the morning, we would also find out that Lance and Paul, that's the Paul that if you follow us anywhere else, that's the Paul we call Teacher Paul, had slept at Hills Island and that Lance had vomited from Lexington to Waverly because he had lost all of his electrolytes. The mouthpiece came off of his bladder, spilling all of his fluids into the bottom of his boat. And so he went a big chunk of that way without his electrolytes, started popping electrolyte pills, which maybe he says wasn't his brightest idea. And then when he got to Waverly, he had to have a doctor look at him. And then once the doctor thought that he was okay to paddle on, he chose to move on to try to make it to Miami. But instead, as the storm intensified, and after already being beaten down by this weather, they slept in Hills Island that night. Tim and I finally got to Miami at 1 a.m. And we were met by John, who was our crew boss, and Christy from Paddle KC, who was volunteering at that ramp. John and a volunteer carried our boats up to the ramp into what was kind of like a boat parking lot. Just massive, massive numbers of boats lined up as close together as they could get them because they knew that a lot of boats would be stopping there for the night given the weather. 
We arrived with a lot of other paddlers, and so it was a little chaotic as boats were carried around. We changed clothes, and then we got ready for bed. And then we also made a quick trip back to the boat. I can't remember what I needed out of my boat, but we had to go back to the boat. And I was talking probably a little too loudly. Tim told me to keep my voice down and pointed out that there were people sleeping in the mud right next to their boats. And I wasn't even aware that there were people sleeping next to their boats. What a horrible, horrible place to have to sleep. But again, it was also a safe place because you're next to your boat and there's no way a car is accidentally going to back over you in the dark. Scary thing to think about, but those are things you have to think about in the dark when people are sleep deprived. And so we got ready for bed and John had set up a tent on top of the truck bed Tim crawled up in the tent. John slept sitting up in the driver's seat. His wife, Julie, sat reclined in the passenger seat. And I stretched across the back seat. We had a little bit of air conditioning on. And all of us were at least able to stay out of the elements for the night. The wind got really loud. There was a massive lightning storm going on around us. And at least we got some good sleep. Well, as good as you can get in those situations. But we weren't sleeping on the side of the river and we weren't on a sandbar. So those were all things that were pluses. I think our friend David got there shortly after we did. Anne and Jamie had also gotten there and set up a tent very near where we were sleeping. And then Paul and Veronica, Paul and his wife, had a really nice camper van that they rented for the week. And they were parked right next to John's truck. So we were kind of all together there sleeping. One thing you hear about all the time in the MR340 Facebook group and on the 340 Paddler YouTube channel is that you never want to sleep in Miami because they say it is really loud, it's horrible, you're not going to get a good night's sleep. I don't know how this year compared to previous years. Miami was definitely bustling with activity. There was a lot going on. The boats were jam-packed in there. All the vehicles were filling the lot. There were tents lined up for rows and rows behind all of the vehicles. I don't know if that's how it usually is or not, but I didn't think it was all that bad. If you have to sleep in Miami, as long as you have a support crew, I think you'll be okay. Put your eye mask on, pop your earplugs in, and do your best to sleep. Those of us in John's truck started waking up about 6.15, so we got four and a half, five hours of sleep that night, which isn't too bad considering our conditions. But we thought it was important to get good sleep so we would get as much recovery time as possible after that brutal first day. So we got up, we started loading the boats, we refilled our hydration bladders, and as we made our way to the ramp, people were already talking that there were more big storms ahead. I just kept on trying to remind myself that we needed to be adaptable. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So I knew that this would be a day where we would go from checkpoint to checkpoint and then reevaluate as we went along. What is the weather? How are we feeling? Is it safe? Christy was working that ramp and she could tell by the texture of the water that it was really windy. And she was already getting reports from safety boats talking about the horrible, horrible conditions ahead. Another one of the ramp volunteers pulled out her phone as we were debating whether or not to get onto the water and showed us the radar. 
The storm looked like it was slightly north of where we were, but we knew that that wasn't going to last long. But at the moment, there was no rain. It really wasn't much of a decision for us at all. Tim and I looked at each other and knew that if we didn't start now, if we waited for this weather to go away, our race was over. And there was no way that we were going to give up unless it became too dangerous. And at this point, it wasn't too dangerous in our minds. As we carried our boats down the ramp and toward the river, I noticed that the crews for other racers all wore that same worried expression that we saw as paddlers were leaving Waverly the night before. One of the women stopped me, and I could see the concern in her eyes as she told me that other paddlers were already hunkered down on shore to avoid the storms that were further downstream. Now, we didn't know it at this point, but Anne and Paul had left Miami two hours earlier. And as I later heard them tell the story of their day, I believe that at the point that we were launching was probably where they ran into trouble. They were most likely some of those paddlers stranded on the side of the river. When I talked to them later, they told me about how they had gotten out of the water to seek shelter and some relief from the wind and rain. At some point, another paddler came up to them and asked if she could join them. And this was kind of cool. Again, all these stories I'm hearing after the fact. But as they were talking, this paddler who joined them realized that they were the Paul and Anne that I talk about in this podcast. And the other paddler was a woman named Kim, who is a listener of this podcast. So I thought that was really kind of a full circle moment, which was cool. But as Anne and Paul waited on the bank, they kept setting their alarm for 15 to 20 minutes at a time. And they were taking power naps. So I do love that they were able to use that time well just to get some extra rest since the waters had gotten so big. Now, if you remember when I did that episode about our camping trip where we went from Waverly to Cooper's Landing, you might recall that there was a point where we talked about the wind blowing us so hard that we were nearly hitting wing dikes. That was the experience they were having that morning. And Neither of them wanted a repeat of that because it was scary. I really believe that the conditions people experienced on day two depended on where they slept and what time they launched. At that same time, in roughly that same two to three hour time frame, Paul and Lance, the Paul we call Teacher Paul, were leaving Hills Island where they had slept. And Paul has this great post in the MR340 Facebook group. And I'm going to read just a little bit of his post. About three miles from Miami, I crossed the swirling river to find the channel. I got caught in a current and the wind blew my kayak against a log on the shore. I slung my arm over the log to steady myself. I remember expecting to be bitten by a water moccasin because nothing new had been added to the list of adversities for a while. A little fear crept in as I sat there looking at what I'd have to muster from within to push myself off that log and paddle the 30 remaining minutes to Miami. I texted the safety crew. A boat arrived within five minutes. I can't say enough about how kind, supportive, and dedicated the MR340 staff and team and community is. I deliberated with them for a minute and decided not to have them take me to Miami. I wanted to paddle the last three miles. I knew my pace. I knew where Glasgow was. I saw the weather radar. Miami was most likely going to be the end for me. I shoved myself off that log and paddled into the Whitecaps. About five minutes into it, the river calmed and the wind died down a little. 
Out of respect for my determination, Old Muddy showed some mercy and gave me safe passage toward the boat ramp at Miami. Mathematically, I could have paddled seven hours at my most aggressive pace, something like seven miles per hour, and beat the Reaper, the race's pace boat, to Glasgow. I might have been able to do that if I had more than five hours sleep in the last few nights. Might have been able to do it with a tailwind instead of a headwind. I considered stretching for 10 minutes at Miami, then launching into that improbable possibility. I looked at the weather radar and saw the line of storms directly in my path. When I reached the boat ramp at Miami, I appreciate the volunteer respecting my determination when he asked, how long are you staying? I said with pride, I think I'm done, brother. That was a little after 9 a.m. Lance and his kayak arrived in a safety boat a little bit later. He had slowed up to see what was going on with me and that log. In the meantime, he was headed directly toward a barge anchored at shore. Terrible things can happen with barges, including getting pulled underneath. He steered himself against the rocky shore, got out, and pulled his kayak out of the water. The safety boat that came to check on me was able to rescue him. Scott Mansker, the MR340's founder, whose kind, forthright, and determined demeanor is the spirit of this event, was on that safety boat. At Miami, to help us feel a little better, Lance asked Scott where this race, the 18th annual, ranks as far as adverse weather. He abruptly replied, the worst. We spoke with a woman who has done the MR340 10 times and finished six of them. She had never seen anything like this one. We met a man who has lived on the Missouri River for 15 years. He said this was the most bizarre weather he's ever seen there. I think you can hear that this day is shaping up to be a mess very, very quickly. As far as Tim and I went, we had a lot of wind, and then we got rain, and then I saw blue sky ahead, and I was positive that this was going to be the end of the downpours, the end of the rain, and it was going to be smooth paddling from there. As Tim and I are debating whether or not the skies are blue or cloudy, I said blue, he said cloudy, another woman comes up alongside of us, and she is just speeding along, and she starts shouting, this is the best MR340 I have ever had going into Glasgow. This weather is beautiful. Usually I am hot, I am sweaty, it is humid, and this weather is glorious. I laughed and I told her I appreciated her perspective. And then Tim started singing some lyrics from the song Mr. Blue Sky. And I said, oh, oh, that's exactly what we need right now. And so I pulled out my phone and turned on the song Mr. Blue Sky, which served as our pump-me-up music. And then afterwards, I decided that this was going to be a good idea. We wouldn't listen to music the whole time, but every hour we would maybe turn on the phone, pick a song, and jam out a little bit. Now, we were also getting into the area where our phones had really, really spotty surface. We didn't have surface very much at all on that whole stretch on day two. And so we didn't have a lot of access to things like being able to pull up our playlists, which are almost all online these days. And so we started doing things like entertaining ourselves by singing songs. And it's amazing to me how I can never remember songs if you tell me to sing a song or what songs does Taylor Swift sing or whatever. I can never remember the songs or the lyrics. But we entertained ourselves by coming up with songs to sing, thinking about old John Denver songs, old Kiss songs, and doing our best to sing things Usually old songs, because for some, for some reason they're stuck in my memory better. But we did things like that to distract and entertain ourselves through this day 
that was just dragging on. As we paddled into Dalton Bottoms, we were cheered in by Jamie, who had a megaphone, and Paul's Posse. They all had these really cute peach shirts that said Paul's Paddling Posse. So they cheered us in, and we decided that was a good place to take some time to refresh a little bit. So we pulled up the ramp, met our crew, made a bunch of sandwiches, downed a bunch of food, refreshed our hydration bladders, went to the bathroom, and then we chatted a little bit with Paul and Anne's crews. I wasn't in a huge hurry to get out of this checkpoint because, again, it was going to be a long day and I knew we had all day to get to Glasgow. And from there, we would continue to reevaluate and decide how far we needed to be and how we would fix this for day three. As we are arriving, Paul is leaving. David paddled on by this ramp and we heard that Anne stopped briefly and had a short conversation with Jamie and then continued to paddle on to Glasgow. We left that ramp and a few hours later, we were at the Glasgow checkpoint. I think we got there around two o'clock. Since we had just stopped in Dalton Bottoms, which was just 13 miles away, probably two hours ago, we didn't stop at Glasgow. We instead just kind of paused in the water to give our arms a break And then after we felt like we were starting to recover a little bit, we started to paddle again. Now, at this point, we were about six hours behind the plan that we had created before we got on the water to start this entire race. I knew we weren't going to make it all the way to Cooper's Landing to sleep. And so as we paddled, I started doing the math. And I did the math about 100 times. I was also really bored and discouraged and really getting tired. And so trying to calculate all the distances between the ramps to figure out what would get put us in the best position on day three, kind of kept my mind busy, kind of kept me distracted for a while. I just needed for myself to figure out how far we would have to make it so we could stay ahead of the Reaper on days three and four. Because I remembered from earlier calculations that days three and four had a lot more checkpoints and they started getting tight and those paces were way faster than what we were able to do in the wind. And so it was just, it was a big mess, a big puzzle I was trying to solve to distract myself while we were paddling. In all of our training, I've said I could finish this thing if we didn't have so much wind. All that wind I hated so much. And here we are again, dealing with wind and rain. Nothing we hadn't had in training. I think our training really, really prepared us well, but it was just, it was hard. And then on day two, At three o'clock, about an hour or an hour and a half after we left Glasgow, everybody received this text. Due to existing and predicted river and weather conditions, the 2023 Missouri American Water MR340 is ending now. A rising river increased driftwood and debris, including large trees, flooding tributaries, a storm with very heavy rain targeting the final 100 plus miles of the race, combined with nighttime paddling and no moonlight, combined with other variables to make this decision. Please help share this information with racers. Racers, the boat ramp nearest you will become your official finish line. Proceed to the nearest boat ramp to connect with your ground crew. If you choose to proceed to paddle past the nearest boat ramp, you are choosing to proceed at your own risk. We do not support or recommend this choice. This choice is unsafe. My phone does not work on this part of the river, so I did not get this text. But we quickly hear other racers hollering things like, hey, the race is canceled, the race is canceled. And so everybody kind of slows down and all of the racers in our area circle up and somebody reads the text. We start debating, was there a closer ramp than Franklin Island? 
Realizing Franklin Island was our only option, and it was still a solid four and a half hours away, I just completely lost my enthusiasm. I immediately wanted to quit. What was the point of continuing to paddle for a race that now had no point? So we spent at least 30 minutes at a very leisurely pace trying to will the energy to finish this race. Now that there were no winners, now that we couldn't make it to that finish line that we had dreamed about since January when we signed up. I told Tim, who is my training partner and the paddler who has been with me nearly every mile of this race, other than when he left me early on at Fort Osage, that if we had more rain, I was going to cry. The minute those words left my mouth, it started to rain again. Somehow I got myself out of this funk and we made it to Franklin Island, but this entire stretch is really just a blur for me. It was more of the same old weather we'd had, but now it was combined with my bad attitude. On the approach to Franklin Island, there's more rain, there's gloomy skies, but I can see Franklin Island up in the distance. We have paddled this section before and I know where that ramp is, except that it wasn't as close to the double bridges as I remembered. And so I paddle up and I think I'm almost there and it's just a little construction site. And then I'm trying to spot the little specks, the paddlers ahead of me, and I see the ramp. This time, I know where the ramp is, and I start paddling even harder. But I also pause every once in a while because Tim is a little bit behind me. He had stopped to take some pictures and also put his shoes back on. And I wanted Tim and I to finish together because he's been my rock through this whole thing. We picked out kayaks together. We did our first paddle together. Every single step of the way... We have done things as a team. And throughout the race, I feel like he really carried a heavy part of the load, the mental load. He used the navigation app most of the time, which let me concentrate just on paddling. He was the one that would try to break up the monotony by asking silly questions, asking would you rather questions, making me sing songs. Even throughout the most scary parts of this race, even through the most challenging and stormy parts, I was never really afraid because I knew that with him by my side, I was going to stay safe. And we make a great team. We had already shown that multiple times before that we can problem solve together. I'm just so thankful I had Tim by my side most of this race. I think it made it a lot more fun. It made it more interesting. It definitely made the hard parts less worrisome. And I will forever be grateful that we we're able to experience this massive adventure from everything that it took from January all the way till when we pulled our boats off the water, that we were able to experience this together. What a learning experience, what a fun experience, and I'm so glad I was able to share this experience with one of my best friends. And that right there is pretty much how our race ends. We pulled into Franklin Landing, we were greeted by all of the crew members, greeted by Christy from Paddle KC get our boats out of the water, and Tim and I are so eager to go get out of those wet clothes. So we go to John's truck, we grab our bags, and we start changing. And as we're going through all of the stuff of getting the boats, carrying the boats to the truck, John mentions that at the last point in tracking, he saw that I was eighth place woman. And I kind of started crying because it was just... It, it made me feel so good. I was so exhausted 
so ready to be done, so determined. I had so many emotions, and eighth place just seemed amazing to me. Now, when the official results came out, it had me ranked at 18th place, and I am good with that too because as the navigation tracker talked to me throughout the race, I was always between 17th and 22nd place for women. So I think that's pretty cool. I think that's way better than people expected me to do. If you've listened to any of those early episodes, you know about the judgment that I received about all the people who doubted me, who didn't think that I could do it. And of course, oh my gosh, and of course, we are both so proud because we finished in that boat. Remember, people always questioned, you're going to do it in those boats? You're going to do it in that boat? Yes, that boat, the 14 and a half foot Dagger Stratus, kicked ass. And of course, those boats had some pretty amazing engines in the two of us. I, I just can't say enough about what an amazing experience this entire journey has been. The friends I've made, the skills I developed, totally punching it in the face in a hard race as someone who just started paddling four months ago. And I have to give my training partners credit because several of us are new paddlers. And I think we all did amazing. I can't say enough about our crews, the friendships we made, the trust and the bonds that we formed, and the paddling community. The paddling community is phenomenal. I have never met so many helpful, genuine, caring people in any sporting activity that I have ever done. This community is head and shoulders above all of them. And so... Before this race, I had already decided I was going to do this again in 2024 because I had already been thinking about what I could do that would be better, and I already had some really good ideas. And now the way I see it, there's no way out because we have unfinished business. Franklin Island is mile marker 172, so we made it about halfway, and I am thrilled with that. And I have no doubt that had the weather allowed us to continue, that all of us would have finished. Our training seriously had us so prepared, and we have such a gritty, determined group of friends. And I really, truly hope that all of them agree to do it again next year, because I would be proud to paddle the full 340 miles with any of them. Also, somebody posted the stats about the race, and the official stats said that there were 469 boats that started the race, 175 DNF'd before the race was called, which means that 62.7% of the people who started the race finished. And to everybody who put their boat in the water at Caw Point, to everybody who made it to Lexington, to Waverly, to Miami, to Franklin Island and beyond, you all rocked it. This was one hard race. And I'm just so proud to know all of you, everybody that I've encountered and I can't wait to do it all over again. So in the next episode, I'm going to give you some more behind the scenes, share some more stories, tell you some more ways we got through the tough parts, and I'll talk to you soon. Wherever life takes you this season, make it an epic adventure. There will never be a better time than now to discover what you're truly capable of. So go ahead, take that first step, even if it feels scary. Do it anyway. Thank you for listening to the Paddle Sports Lifestyle. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review. See you 
on the water.